Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 17 this morning. We're going to begin looking at verse 11, um, and then we'll finish the chapter today. So, Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 11. And we've read this passage in full over the, the last few weeks, so I hope you have some memory of where we've been and I'll, I'll do my best to try to explain a little bit of it for those of you who are just visiting with us and new to us this morning. We're so glad you've come to worship with us this morning. Let's read this text together. If you would, just follow along in your copy as I read uh, from Revelation chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Now, this is John writing about the vision that he sees from the Lord. He says, As for the beast that was and is not... It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, thank you. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for gathering us for the purpose of hearing your word and singing your praises and remembering your sacrifice and even participating in it today through the Lord's Supper. And we thank you for this time now where we get to come again to your word and I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and understand and receive what you have given to us. This is a difficult passage as has been all of the revelation. But so allow me the the strength and ability and even the the power from your spirit to proclaim your word and let let it accomplish your purpose in us and through us. Lord, we give you this time and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Betrayal. Betrayal is one of those things that at some level all of us have experienced Maybe through a friendship, or maybe through a a family relationship, or maybe it was at work. Betrayal is one of those things that most of us can identify with at some level. Betrayal can be defined as giving aid and giving information to the enemy. But we know it best from our own experience, and perhaps we know it as a, a nation, as a people, we know it best by the men and women 
who have become notorious because they gained the trust of those around them and then abused that trust to deceive and bring about their own disastrous plan. In American history, there is a name that rises above all other names in this regard, and it's the name of Benedict Arnold. Some of you know that name very well. Hopefully all of us know that name at some level. Benedict Arnold was alive from 1741 to 1801. He was a general during the American Revolutionary War. Um, He originally fought for the American Continental Army, but through a series of events that weren't favorable to him, he he was passed over for a few promotions, he was court-martialed for his behavior in a couple of instances, and then he was offered a large sum of money by the British, and because of that, he decided that he was going to defect and he was going to betray his countrymen. Arnold was an American general in this particular war, and he had command of the fort at West Point, and yes, it's the same West Point, and he used his command at West Point as a bargaining chip with the British, but as you might know from history, his plan fell through. He, he, his plan was to surrender West Point, and he had devised this plan with a, a British major named John Andre. And, and the, the plot was discovered when Major John Andre was captured, and he was carrying papers that revealed this particular plot. And upon learning about Andre's capture, Arnold fled and was nearly captured by Washington's men, but he was not. He made it into the British forces, and then he joined their ranks. Uh, He went from being a general to being a, a brigadier general, and he led those British forces into several raids in Virginia and Connecticut. But as we know, the the war ended with an American victory. And after the war, Arnold was uh, able to spend some time in Canada. He ended up going to London at one point, and then he died in obscurity, and essentially he was trusted by no one. Not, Not the British and certainly not the American forces. And yet his name, his traitorous name, has lived on. The name Benedict Arnold quickly, even in that day, became a byword in American culture. And to this day, if anyone is called a Benedict Arnold, it is because that individual has followed their namesake in some form of deceitful betrayal of those who trusted him. Now, what does that have to do with our passage this morning? Well, our passage that we just read, this section of Revelation 17, it contains a similar trajectory as Uh, Benedict Arnold and his life. It contains an unholy alliance, only in this case it's an alliance between all the nations of the world underneath the beast giving their authority to him. It contains a, a declaration of war. The war is declared by these nations and the beast against the lamb. And then in the end, that strange section that we read there about Babylon, about the great the great immoral woman and the the nations of the world turning on her, that shows us something of a betrayal. So here's what we see. Babylon the Great sits atop the nations of the world. She accomplishes her seductive purpose in uh, in their company. And yet, we read that when the end comes, the nations will turn on her and devour her, and it is God who has put it in their hearts to do so. So we see three things in this passage. We see an alliance, we see a declaration of war, and we see an unexpected betrayal. 
So let's look at it a little more in detail. Let's start with that alliance, which I'm going to call an alliance of evil. Look back at verse 11 with me. It says, and as for the beast that we've been studying, the beast that was and is not, the beast is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So for those of you who are, are new to us this morning, or maybe you've forgotten what we've studied over the last couple of weeks, here's what's happening in, in John chapter 17. I mean, Revelation 17. John is speaking to an angel, and this angel is one who had been assigned in chapter 16 to pour out the bowls of God's wrath. So this is a bowl angel. And this angel comes to John and says, I'm going to give you a new vision, and I'm going to explain that vision. And he takes John out into a wilderness, and he begins to show this vision of chapter 17 and 18, which reveal how God is going to defeat the five enemies that have been revealed throughout the book of the Revelation. Those five enemies include this, the dragon, who symbolically represents Satan himself, the beast from the sea, who symbolically represents the wicked kingdoms of the world, the beast from the earth, which symbolically represents the uh, idolatrous religions of the world, and then Babylon, who represents the seduction of sin or worldliness, and then those who are earth dwellers, those who represent those who rejected Christ and those who worship the beast. Those are the five enemies of God and of God's people that have been revealed throughout the book. And that's what this, this vision is all about, how God is going to judge them ultimately and destroy them. And here in verse 11, the angel is talking now about the beast, the beast that represents those kingdoms of the world that are in league with Satan. And, and John is told here that the beast has seven heads and ten horns. And these seven heads and these ten horns represent anti-Christian kingdoms, godless kingdoms of this world and their rulers. But if you can remember the vision that goes all the way back to the beginning of 17, Babylon, as this great immoral woman, sits atop these nations and she entices the people of God to come away from their profession of faith. She entices us or tempts us with... Uh, various forms of seduction and, and immoral behavior, but she also is in control of the world through this, right? So Babylon is sitting atop these, in, these individuals and these nations, and she is tempting and she's influencing the earth. Now last week we learned about this beast, and we learned a, a similar language. The beast was, is not, is going to rise from the bottomless pit and then is going to go on his way to destruction. Y'all remember that? Same beast, but here the explanation of the beast is a little different. When he talks about the beast in that sense, he's, he's showing us something of a picture, the cycle of wicked nations, right? We talked about this. All the nations going all the way back to Babel and Egypt and Babylon and then on to the Greco-Roman world and how these nations would rise and they would stand against the people of God and then those nations would fall but then another nation would rise to take its place and once again the people of God were facing persecution, right? That's part of that cycle. Okay, now that's a summary. That's a reminder. But here in verse 11 he says something interesting about this beast, something new about this beast. He says that this beast is, it, it was and is not, but it is an eight. And it is of the seven, but it goes to destruction. So what does that mean? What does it mean that this beast is not one of the seven, but it's related to the seven, but it's actually an eighth? Now, just so you know, within apocalyptic literature, this is clearly understood to be symbolic. 
Even, even those who would disagree with my interpretation would say that, yes, this is symbolic, but they would claim that it symbolizes this. A lot of scholars today would interpret this to mean that, that they're referring to a very specific Roman emperor. You've probably heard this. Some of you may believe this, and that's, that's fine if you choose to do that. I, I don't believe that that's what it's pointing to specifically, but many would claim that this idea of him being an eighth, even though he belongs to the seven, is they would, they would have a list of Roman emperors. And oh, by the way, there's a lot more than just seven Roman emperors. So there's a problem with where do you start in the list. But there's, there's seven Roman emperors, and this eighth one is a lot like one of those Roman emperors. And a lot of scholars will say, well, this is Emperor Domitian because he persecuted the church um, unlike anybody else except for Nero. And so they would you know, trying to toggle back and forth and say, this is this and that is that. Now, you're, you're fine if you hold to that position. I think it's a challenging position to hold to, but I interpret this symbolically as a reference not to an actual emperor, but to an empire, a nation, right? That's what this beast represents. And he represents that all the way back in Daniel and throughout the book of the Revelation. So I'm not shifting from that interpretation. I'm maintaining that interpretation, the seven heads, the seven kings, the seven mountains that we learned about last week, they refer to seven wicked empires, seven wicked kingdoms that have set themselves against God and against God's people. But what do we do with that language of he's an eighth, but he's of the seven? What is that all about? The fact that there is an eighth that is also part of the seven, again, is to be understood symbolically or figuratively. The Greek text actually says that he is of the seven, not that he is one of the seven. And that's different, right? If he's one of the seven, then he would fall into a lineage. But if he's of the seven, in other words, he is, he's similar to them. He has similar properties that that wicked nation would have. And I would interpret it in that way. That this means that the eighth is like the seven, but it stands apart from the seven. And it stands apart from the seven in that this beast, who is like the others... This beast rose from the bottomless pit, and I would interpret that to be that this nation is going to be the fullest embodiment of satanic power that the world has ever seen. And some of you already have that in your mind. When you think about the end times, when you think about the end of the world, and you think about persecution against the church ramping up, you would understand at some level that persecution is at its all-time high. And I would say that this interpretation follows something of that that mentality. The wicked empires of history that have persecuted the people of God, they were all, according to the, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, they were all under the direct influence of satanic power. And I believe it is fair to expect that there will be one final and most likely a global empire that will rise up to oppose and persecute Christians throughout the world in a way that is more terrible than those before it. Do I believe that that would be embodied in one nation state? No, I don't. I believe it will be a unified effort of those nations, quite similar to what we're seeing now. It is also fair to believe that this empire or this alliance of empires will be formed on a demonic basis. Look at verse 12. He tells us, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. 
These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So the, the beast and the seven, which represents kings and heads and all that, that's referring to nations. This is referring to leaders or rulers over those nations. And the thing that they have in common is that they are going to receive their authority. The question is, where do they receive their authority from? And then they are going to, in league with one another, they're going to unite that authority with the beast in opposition to the people of God. So this gives us a picture of demonic realities influencing world events even for the purpose of allying those world events against the people of God. The angel explains that this will take place in the future, in the future from John's day, because these kings have not yet received their power. They will receive it, but they haven't, at least at that point. And these ten horns represent world leaders, other nations who are under the influence of Satan. But there's even more numerical symbolism here. Notice the number 10. There's 10 horns. The number 10 is used throughout the Revelation in a symbolic way. In in, in the sense that whenever the word 10 is used to describe something, it's used to describe the influence of Satan, his servants, and his activities. I'm going to give you these. You can write these down and go back and look it up if you'd like. Or if you have some Bible software, you can just search throughout the Revelation for the number 10 and you'll see this. But Satan instigates 10 days of persecution in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. So the the reference to 10, 10 days of persecution is related to the activity of Satan in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3... We read that the dragon himself, the the symbolic representation of Satan, has ten horns. The beast coming up out of the sea, which is the very beast we're studying here in Revelation 17. Also in Revelation 13, that beast has ten horns. The scarlet beast that we've been studying has these ten horns. And here we see that there are ten kings making an alliance in service to the beast. Every time we see that terminology, it is symbolically tying the actions of those individuals or that activity back to Satan himself. And so when we read this, we understand that these ten kings coming together with the beast are coming to do the bidding of Satan himself in the world. That's the way that the vision should be understood. The point is to show that these wicked empires and the final wicked empire and all of the unbelieving world leaders who are allying themselves together in opposition to Christ and the gospel, they are undeniably in league with Satan. Undeniably, according to the scriptures. They are of one mind, John is told. They are united in their purpose, which is to do the bidding of the beast. They form an anti-Christian alliance But John says, as frightening as that may seem, they will have authority for just one hour. The reference to one hour is not literal, I don't believe. I think it's symbolic and it's supposed to show us just how limited, just how brief this alliance will be allowed by God to exist. Their power will be short. Their influence and effect upon the world stage will be brief. And in the end, this empire, this alliance of evil will be destroyed just like the rest, right? But that doesn't stop them from making war. So we've looked at this alliance of evil. Now let's look at the war against the Lamb. Look at verse 14 with me. 
It says that they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So this is not only, this passage is not only a reference to the Lord, this is a reference to the church, those who are called and chosen and faithful. Brother, sister, that's you. If you ever wonder, as you're reading through the text of the Revelation, and you're trying to make sense of the symbolism as I've been teaching it to you, and you might wonder, well, where, where's the church in this? Right there. And you have to see it in that language. The, cho- the chosen, the called, and the faithful. So we will be with the Lord in this particular instance. But there's no doubt about this passage, this alliance of evil nations are making war on the Lamb. And you might, you might wonder... where where are we in the scope of the nations making war on the church? In American culture, there exists still, to this day, a general appreciation for Jesus, even amongst unbelieving people. Now, I'll grant you that many of those unbelieving people, they don't really understand who Jesus is, right? They've created a Jesus in their mind, and and that's not the, the Jesus of Scripture. Yet, there is still a general acceptability to Jesus. And growing up in the South, which I know not all of us in this room can say that, but I grew up in the South. And growing up in the South, I was taught at a very early age to have respect for the things of God. Right? The Bible is true. Church was a place to be quiet. I'm not telling you to be quiet, but that's, this is, that's what I was taught as a kid. And, and when it was time for church, my dad would snap his fingers or he'd give me the eye and I knew it was time to straighten up, be quiet put whatever I'm playing with in my pocket, you know. We were taught that, and then we were also taught that Jesus was very important. And in such a climate, it might be hard for us to imagine a united effort, including our own country, in opposition to Christ and the church. But friend, if you look a little bit deeper into what is going on in Western society, you cannot help but see that the foundations of biblical Christianity are already being opposed on numerous fronts. Our nation has experienced a moral revolution, a sexual revolution that started in the 60s and it has become codified into law with the Obergefell decision just a few years ago. The breakdown of law and order has occurred so much that when a national court case is decided, every major city expects not only protests but riots and looting and destruction and virtually no one is held accountable. The attack on the nuclear family, which is the foundation for all of human civilization, is still marching on. The systematic and taxpayer-funded push for ethnic prejudice under the guise of diversity and equity and inclusion is in opposition to what the Bible teaches about human dignity and social unity. And the rise of Marxist teaching is a direct assault upon the Western ideas of personal property and limited governance and just taxation, which are all predicated on a biblical worldview. Brothers and sisters, we are witnessing, we are are seeing it happen around us, and it's been happening for decades now. We are seeing a series of massive cultural shifts where fundamental beliefs rooted in God's Word are not only seen as outdated but oppressive. And in short, our culture is increasingly aligning itself with beliefs and morals and practices that are directly opposed to Christ and His Word. So in many ways, this war has already begun. This war has already begun. 
but we can take comfort in something. They will make war on the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them. The lamb will not be defeated. He will conquer. Why? Because he's, he's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He has authority over all of them. In fact, I would interpret this, that, that the authority that they have been given it is an authority that has been given by God. There is no authority except God's, and he grants authority to all, even the wicked nations, to accomplish his purpose. The Bible tells us that these individuals are like, they're like a stream in the Lord's hands. Now, some would say that this particular phrase about they making war on the Lamb and the Lamb conquering them for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, some commentators will say that this verse is out of place. And they'll say it's out of place because it's taken from the battle scene that we're going to read and study a little bit later on in Revelation 19. And you're probably familiar with that passage. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns in this triumphal way. And he returns on a, a great white war horse. And when he comes, he comes to make war. He comes to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And, and, and when he does, we, we learn in that instance that he has a name that is written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? And we love that, right? We love that picture because it shows the triumphal and, 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 and victorious return of Christ. And some would say, well, this little verse here is, is out of context because that really belongs there. Well, what John is receiving from this angel is he's receiving just a one-verse description of what is to come. He's giving us a preview of the battle that is going to be described in full when Jesus returns victorious. But he's reminding us whether it's that day or it's now, Jesus still bears the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we can take comfort from that, brothers. That, that battle has not yet fully been in, in, engulfed the nations, and it doesn't matter. Our faith is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. Our confidence is in Christ. We don't need to worry about aligning ourselves with anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ because he still, to this day, bears the title King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he will overcome. And the fact that he is king over all kings, it, it's a reference to his sovereignty. It's a reference to his divine authority. His authority is over all. He sovereignly rules over all creation and he's been given this title because of what he accomplished on the cross. The Bible says that when Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, now God the Father has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and declare that he is Lord. That's what's going to happen, and that is true today, not just in the future. Our Christ is Lord. He is Lord over, our, over all lords. And that outlines His majesty and His power. And that means that every ruler and every nation and every people group and every creature under heaven is subject to His authority. They belong to Him. He rules over them. Today, Jesus rules over His kingdom, His church, as Savior, Redeemer, and Lord, and King. But there is coming a day... When his rule will be revealed to all and his kingdom will be fully established and when that day comes, every knee will bow and every knee will recognize, every soul will recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, according to this text, he is going to defeat and subdue 
and destroy every anti-Christian dominion, every ruler, and every authority. He will overthrow them all. And the church, those who are with him, those who have not bowed the knee to the beast, those who have not accepted the mark, but those who are known as covered by the blood of the Lamb, those who are Christians, the called and the chosen and the faithful, the Scriptures tell us over and over again, we will be more than conquerors through Him who loved us. His victory will be our victory. So brothers and sisters, we can and we must reject this and every culture that opposes Christ and His Word. Did y'all hear that? All the stuff that's going on in our, in our culture right now, everything that would want you to, to take your hope out of what God has revealed in His Word and put it in some newfangled thing that's being taught at Ivy League schools, right? We have to learn to reject, and we must reject. Every idea, every belief, every new cultural trend that stands in opposition to Christ and in opposition to His Word. That's how we remain faithful to Christ and not being tempted to follow the seduction of Babylon and the direction of the beast. And you're thinking, well, that's a hard thing to do. Well, you know, thankfully, God has given us examples of what that looks like. Like the Moses story. Y'all remember the story of Moses? And Moses was this Hebrew that was given over to the river because the Pharaoh wanted to kill all the male children, and by God's providence, he was restored. Recovered and he became a leader for the people of God and, and opposed Pharaoh and led the people of God out into the wilderness, into the promised land. You know the story of Moses. Well, the writer of Hebrews summarizes the life of Moses and the choices that Moses had to make, and he does it this way. He said, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Brothers and sisters, I know this world is tempting, but are you keeping your eyes focused on the reward? The reward is Christ himself. And the marching orders are to follow him on that narrow and dangerous road. Because the way is broad that leads to destruction, but the way is narrow that leads to life. And like Moses, we have to keep our focus on Christ and not give our love over to this world. So there's going to be this unholy alliance. And this unholy alliance, motivated by Satan himself, are going to make war against the Lamb. And the Lamb is going to utterly defeat them. And the chapter could end there, but it doesn't. It ends with this strange twist in the course of events. The entities that once worked together will be plagued by an epic betrayal. So look at verse 15. We'll see the, the betrayal of Babylon. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. I've been interpreting this as uh, showing the Babylon's influence over the nations and the multitudes and the languages. In verse 16, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will now hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. Here's what John is seeing in this vision. These kingdoms that once prospered under the seduction of Babylon will in the end turn upon her. 
The people who once drank from her golden cup of immorality will turn on her. They will hate her and they will devour her. The world has no great love for this immoral woman. They only want to use her. And when her pleasures run dry, she will be tossed aside. That's the picture we see here. The world will turn on itself. By the way, the Old Testament prophets used very similar language to describe the way uh, the pagan nations would treat Israel and Judah. This is from Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 39. They shall throw down your vaulted chamber. They shall break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. And they shall bring up a crowd against you and stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. This is... Ezekiel writing and he understands that God is going to judge Israel for her sin and Judah for his sin and John says that God is going to judge the nations of the world in the same way. As we've been seeing throughout the Revelation, John takes those Old Testament passages and he brings them into our modern context. God will use the foreign forces of this world to cause the destruction of those who oppose Christ and the church. And God did this in the past. He, when, when Israel was being besieged, God would tell them, hey, we're, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to take that wicked nation, and I'm going to pit them against that wicked nation, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose through them. Well, God's going to do the same thing in the end. And yes, it is God who does this. Verse 17 says it is God who has put it in their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Friends, I know that there's, there's a lot of different ideas about what God is obligated to do within the world, but I can tell you this, from my study of Scripture, God is under no obligation to give grace and mercy to anyone, especially to the nations who reject His Son and His Word. The coalition of evil are like water in His hands. He will direct them in whichever way He wills, and by doing this, He is simply carrying out His purpose and fulfilling His Word. God is sovereign. He will accomplish His purpose. But the betrayal of Babylon brings, in, at least into my mind, the story of another betrayal, not just Benedict Arnold, but one that's a little closer to maybe our context here, and it's the betrayal of Judas. Now remember Judas. By all accounts, Judas was a faithful and dependable disciple of Christ. By all accounts, he was trustworthy. I mean, it was Judas who had been given, uh, you know, control over the purse strings, right? Judas was that individual. But we know this, inwardly, Judas harbored a love for the world. He harbored a love for money. He harbored some love for power. And his life bore proof of Jesus's teaching. What Cody led us in earlier in our confession of sin, his life bore truth that you cannot serve two masters can't serve both God and money. Judas betrayed the Lord for a, a bag of silver. And maybe the temptation in our hearts today is, well, I can still love Jesus and, and have my worldliness too. And the Scriptures tell you, you can't serve two masters. The allure of this world is strong. The temptation to sin is powerful. But don't be lured away by the world. 
promises of satisfaction are false and empty. They lead to destruction. The pleasures of this world will last only for a season, a brief moment. Babylon offers nothing that will last. But Christ holds out the promise of eternal life to those who find it. And so I've been kind of referencing this teaching of Jesus on the narrow path and the broad gate. I want to bring it up now and and I'll close with this thought. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. And I want you to think about what that word narrow means. How many of you like being in narrow places? None of us do. But that's the gate that he tells us to enter by. For the gate is wide, broad, and it is easy, but it leads to destruction. And those who enter that broad, easy, wide gate are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is a passage we know well. Let's think about it in terms of what we're being, what's being revealed to us here. And don't forget that this is being revealed to the church. This revelation is being revealed to the church, especially to those within the church who might be tempted to compromise their faith with worldliness. Jesus tells us in this discourse on the, the two gates, he tells us that there are really in life only two spiritual journeys. And I know that kind of flies in the face of our modern culture. We want to believe that, oh, there are many ways to God. There are many different pathways to God. And, and I could be on this journey or that journey or any of the dozen options that I have available to. And Jesus just cuts right through all of that jargon and says, no, there's really only two journeys. There's really only two paths. There's only two gates. There are countless religions in the world, but there are only two ways and there's only two destinations. The way to destruction is broad. There's plenty of room. Plenty of room for all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of religions, all kinds of ideas, all kinds of spiritual commitments. Broad and easy means open, it means inviting, it means tolerant. It's an easy way that doesn't require much from you in life, but Jesus says in the end it's going to lead to your ruin. It leads to destruction. The other way is narrow. It's cramped. It's so narrow that you have to walk single file, right? It's not broad and easy. It's narrow and it's difficult. That word means dangerous. But that narrow and dangerous way, guess where it leads? It leads to life. It's the only path that leads to life. There's only one path that leads to life, but there are countless paths that lead to destruction. And here's what that means as an application point. Your spiritual beliefs are leading you somewhere. Your faith commitments are leading you somewhere. And some of you may argue, I don't have any faith commitments. I don't don't believe in religion. Well, that in and of itself is a faith commitment. You are putting your hope in something, whether it's Christ or this world or yourself. You've made a faith commitment. There's only two paths, and we're all on one of the other. Even if you're on a path that has rejected religion in general, or maybe if you're on a path that rejects the gospel more specifically, you've made faith commitments, and they are leading you somewhere. We enter our chosen path through the gate, through those faith commitments, through those beliefs. And the question that presses on our hearts at this point is which path are you on? There's only two. And, and by doing this, Jesus says, oh, by the way, that universalism that keeps being preached and taught all over the world, that's a lie. There's, there's not universal ways to salvation. There's one way to salvation. And Jesus is going to make this even more narrow. 
and just anger our culture all the more. Not only does he say there's only two paths, he says the only one that leads to life is me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Only through Christ can your sins be forgiven. Only through Christ can you have hope that when that alliance is made in the world and the lamb conquers that alliance, that you will be with the lamb chosen and faithful and called. Only through Christ. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus who is the one and only Son of God who came to this earth to live the life we couldn't hope to live, a life of obedience to our Creator, and then to die in the place of sinners like you and me to pay the price for our sins, and then to be raised from the dead to show that God has accomplished through Christ everything that was necessary to save you and make you His only by trusting in Him and only by the work of Christ can we find that path that leads to life. He died to win the gate, and all who enter through it will find life at the end of the journey. The question is, which path are you on? Which gate have you chosen? What does your life look like? Are you following the Lamb, or are you caught up in the world? There is but one hope, and I'm going to pray now that today will be the day you find it. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these visions and this revelation. We wouldn't understand and we wouldn't know what was to come were it not for you revealing these things to us. We wouldn't even know you were it not for you revealing yourself through your word and through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as this picture grows darker, as we think about this world alliance standing in opposition to Christ and the people of God, Lord, it is a dark picture, but you remind us over and over and over again that The end for those who oppose you is destruction. And for those who put their hope in Christ, there is life. So Father, would you comfort us with these words and would you encourage us as your people and for those among us today who don't know you, who are just following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, let them know that the end of that life leads to destruction and there is one hope for them and that's to turn from their sin and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you accomplish your saving purpose in their hearts today, even now? And would you allow us all to walk from this place encouraged with with clear eyes to see the world that you've called us to live in and to be salt and light in and help us to accomplish your purpose For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.